So today, we're going to dive back into our series on Matthew. We're almost done, guys. We're on chapter 26, uh, and we're going to look at Jesus' arrest. And we're getting close to the end, and lots of exciting things are starting to happen. Not that there haven't been exciting things beforehand, but it's getting real exciting now. But the big question I want us to ask and wrestle with this morning is, how do we respond to threats to our belief? When something comes up against what we believe or we know is right, how do we respond to those things? And the idea I don't want to land on and take us to is that when we face threats, we can't be like the disciples and turn to fight or flight. We instead must be like Jesus and respond in faith. And since Jesus wins the biggest fight, the ultimate fight, we get to act as victors in all things. We don't need to be on guard. We get to act as victors. I'll read the passage. You guys can get an idea of where we're going to go. So this is Matthew 26, 47 to 56. It says, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, I am, leading, <clears throat> am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place. The writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, little liturgy we're adding in there. Very formal around here, but just recognition that God's word is powerful. It's active and alive and something that's worthy of our, our respect. I don't know if you guys are like me at all, but so I, this is like a little I'll pull back the covers. Every time I get a passage to preach on and I read it for the first time, my mind goes completely blank. I'm like, there's no way I can preach on this. What's going on here? I don't know if you guys, when you read scripture, that's kind of your first, we're so tuned to just look at the surface of things. Uh, but uh, there's a lot going on here, and, uh, and a lot of good word Jesus has for us. But a little recap of where we're at, because it's been four weeks since we've been in Matthew. Um, but Jesus has been in Jerusalem. Uh, we're kind of dialing right into this week uh, of Passover and all these important Jewish events. So Jesus has been there. He's doing lots of teaching, um, convicting hard words for the Pharisees, you know, foreshadowing of his death. All these things are happening. And this night that the arrest takes place is actually the same night of the Last Supper that we preached on six weeks ago, where Jesus and his disciples share this meal together. Um, Jesus is talking about the end, but he's also predicting this betrayal that's going to happen to him. And then after that, um, Judas, 
hint, hint, he's the betrayer, um, kind of takes off, and the rest of the disciples go to this garden. It's probably known to them, a common stop on their way back to, to home for the night. They take a time to rest, um, but Jesus, more importantly, takes the time to go to his father. And this really impassioned prayer of, like, Lord, take this cup from me. Take this burden from me if you can. I don't want to die an excruciating death, but it's if, if it's your will, I will. And so that's ultimately where he lands. So this, it's your will um, that this path laid before me uh, is what's best. And then right there is where this story picks up. So we see that in verse 27. While he was still speaking, referring to the, the garden scene, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. <clears throat> so now we can see where Judas got off to. He knew <clears throat> that after the supper, the supper was kind of in the city, in a crowded area. There would have been people around. Uh, it would have made a bigger scene, but he knew that Jesus typically retired to this garden, private setting. It's not going to be a crowd. It's not going to be a big ordeal, an easy place to trap Jesus. And so all the people that had been offended by Jesus, all the religious leaders, they get their guys with clubs and sticks, and they're just ready. They're ready to go take on Jesus and his 12 fishermen, his 12 peasants. Uh, so it seems like an overreaction in some ways. But this is how much they, they actually feared Jesus. His message had had such a profound impact uh, on the people that they came in force. So then in verse 48, it continues on. It says, Now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. What a striking sign of betrayal, right? Betrayed by a kiss. Uh, and back then, kissing would have been a more common form of greeting than now. Uh, <clears throat> so it's still a very intimate gesture, but it wasn't as uncommon. Like, I'm not going to come up and kiss you guys in the lobby. COVID has extra <laughs> ixnayed that. Um, uh, I jokingly have said a lot during COVID. Like, how are we going to obey that command to greet one another with a holy kiss that Paul says? Like, just feel like I need to rip off my mask, but I won't do that, guys. Sorry. Um, but Judas takes this greeting that was you know, reserved for friends intimate relationships, and he turns it on its head. He's like, this is my sign of betrayal. Can I go up and kiss him? I, I don't know, I, like, not that I know what it's like to betray someone, but I think I'd still be pretty nervous in that moment. But I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to even get close to Jesus, because I'd be like, he's going to know, especially Jesus. He's going to know. He already called me out at dinner. Uh, I'm not going near him, but he does. And what struck me about this is it's, really unveiled the depths of sin that live in a human heart. Just the, like, the depravity that we could go to to get there. You know, if you could put yourself in Judas's place, you might start to understand that. I like to do this as I read stories, even the bad, bad guys. Um, but to approach someone you've lived with so closely, like the past three and a half years, they've journeyed together. Jesus has basically been an older brother to him. He's spoken... <laughs> words of conviction and encouragement. And he kisses them to betray them for a lowly bag of silver. And this is the potential that actually lives in all of us, right? And as a lot of scripture does, uh, this humbles me. It shows me that I have the potential to do this. And it's hard. It's a hard word. It's a hard word for all of us. Um, so I wanted to take us on a little rabbit trail for a second because uh, that's what preachers do to fill time. But I've had a few conversations lately, um, various people in West Village from different backgrounds, and they're talking about, yeah, like you guys actually spend a lot of time during your preaching tearing people down. 
Like you spend a lot of time convincing people that they are sinful. And I was like, that's totally true. That's what the lens I view a lot of my sermons through. Um, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to convince you people that you're not good people. I'm trying to convince myself that I'm not good people. You know, we, we need to be humbled often. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It actually fits with our context of kind of the middle class. Generally, people come here, they feel like they got it together. You got your coffee, your scone. You know, you were able to get out of bed in the morning to get here. That means you got it partially together. But I want to acknowledge that that is our primary form of preaching. Uh, but there's actually people in our midst, especially people that aren't from this community, that don't need to be humbled. Some of you come here and you hear me preach and you're like, Matt, you're beating me up more. Life is so hard already that I know I'm broken. That I know I need Jesus. And our preaching actually just adds despair to your life. Kind of piles hurt on hurt. And I want to apologize for that. This is really what I was convicted of this week. Sometimes we push that button too hard. And it's in response to recognition of our own sin, what I need some ways. Um, but my desire is that as, as I preach, as the other preachers preach, that we'd get there. But sometimes we don't have to push that button too hard. And we'd push the button of hope more. We'd come and lay in your lap the message of Jesus. So that you're not left in despair. You don't just feel more beat up on. So that may only be a few of you. But I just want, yeah, I thought that was an important message to share. An important recognition. Um, and if it's not, if you're the prideful bunch like me, we're going to keep beating you up a little bit. It's going to be okay. Uh, Jesus will be there at the end. Uh, I need to be humbled every time I come in here, and I know that's a lot of us. Let's go back to the story. Verse 49. So Jesus or Judas tells everybody, I'm going to go kiss the guy you got to capture. Seems weird that they wouldn't know who Jesus was. There was no Facebook, okay? Jesus didn't have a profile picture. They couldn't really, we don't even know what he looks like today, right? Like they didn't know. Uh, he wouldn't have been well known. They couldn't put up his poster. So we had to go identify. Someone that knew him well had to identify who he was uh, to these soldiers, to these kind of temple police. So going at once to Jesus, Jesus said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Interesting here that you know Judas still continues to call Jesus Rabbi, which is teacher, pretty formal title for someone that has one been with him for so long. But two, the rest of the disciples made this transition, a pretty important transition, to starting to call him Lord, as they recognized who he was, as they recognized his godhood more and more and more. And uh, and Jesus and Judas really purposefully says, "No, you're just a teacher to me. You're not my Lord." And this is the line of betrayal that he can't cross, right? Like, he can't actually go that far. Part of him uh, <clears throat> can't call him Lord and betray him. Uh, and so how does Jesus react to this? Verse 50, it says, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. What a striking response from Jesus. He knows exactly what's going on, but how can he call him friend? Friend. you've heard me preach before, you know it's always the, these small little phrases from Jesus that they strike me so, so impactfully as I prep throughout the week. The Spirit always does something with them. And this is the one that did it for me this week. What an amazing God we follow. He's just been approached by a crowd of like 
armed guards, by the one that he knows is going to betray him, by one that has the audacity to come up and kiss him, embrace him, be intimate with him. If we knew these things, if we're watching a movie and these things happening, we're indignant, we're enraged. How could this be? What injustice is this? Do what you came for, friend. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows that this is just one more step on this path to this excruciating death on the cross. He knows that this is an important part of God's plan. He had just prayed in the garden, Lord, take this cup from me. It's going to be so painful, so horrible. And yet, one of the key figures in bringing that about in Judas, the betrayer, calls him friend. He still has room in his heart to call him friend. <laughs> I can't imagine Judas in that moment. Just being like, what? Why aren't you angry at me? Why aren't you calling me out? How can you do this? Probably had a few second thoughts, but things are already in motion. Remember this picture of Jesus. If you get nothing else this morning, this beautiful picture of Jesus, he's calmly facing death. He's so confident in his father's plan that he can embrace his enemies, that he's willing to call us friends despite our brokenness. It's a powerful little picture of the God that we follow, that we worship. But not everyone is as level-headed as Jesus about the whole situation. Uh, let's continue on to verse 50, the last bit of verse 50 and 51. It says, Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, so one of his disciples, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. I almost got Andrew to come up here and reenact this, but probably would have been too graphic for us. Wouldn't really want to see it. But, uh, you know, they say the Bibles are rated for a reason, right? Like, this is someone's ear is getting sliced off. There's probably blood gushing out. And uh, it's violent, right? It's not the Sunday school picture of Jesus that, that we see often in a Sunday school picture of the Bible. But this is the fight response. Uh, it lives in all of us in some ways, uh, maybe men more than women. Um, and we look at this and we're like, how courageous, how brave of him. In the face of this mob, one man with a sword stands up and defends Jesus. This is what a hero would do. Every movie we watch teaches us that a hero acts in the face of overwhelming odds. They're brave and courageous, and because they are right, they will succeed. They will triumph. And a lot of us, when we read this story, may think that. I'm sure if I read this with my kids, they'd be like, I want to be that guy because he has a sword uh, and he gets to fight people. So shouldn't we be applauding this disciple, celebrating him? Uh, well, one, they don't even name him, um, at least in Matthew, probably for a reason. And two, as we'll see in verse 52, we actually don't applaud him. He doesn't get the praise or the glory. 
So what's actually going on here? What, what can we learn about ourselves and what does Jesus have to teach us? So this disciple thinks he knows what's best, right? He came prepared with a sword. He came prepared to defend his version of what he thinks is right. Jesus has been impactful in my life. You can't take him away from me. I will not let you. This is what I think following him looks like, and I will defend it aggressively and violently. So blood is drawn. I'm sure a man almost dies. All in the name of Jesus. And unfortunately, this response of fighting when our beliefs are challenged still lives deeply in us today. We value this picture of what Christianity looks like that has been formed by how we read the Bible, the books we read, the podcasts we listen to, the sermons we listen to. And it starts to like, form this deeply held set of beliefs around what Jesus and his kingdom is going to look like, what Christianity is going to look like, what church is going to look like, what community group is going to look like, uh, whatever it is. And so we hold that, and we hold it tightly. And when anything comes up against that, we fight it. I'm right, you are wrong. So we protest, we argue, we yell, we disobey authorities, we belittle people, we use violence, physically, verbally, emotional violence, to convince people that we know what is best. We are going to get you to submit. Because at its core, any sort of fighting or violence is really just two wills, two opinions, two people coming up against one another and battling for submission. So our beliefs constantly need to be defeating the beliefs of others. It's the only way they will thrive or succeed or will feel comfortable. And so we fight because we don't want to be, we don't want to submit. So ironic, right? For people that is called to die to itself in this ultimate act of submission that we let this <clears throat> idea of fighting survive in us and actually thrive in certain areas of the church, right? But we're all arrogant. We all think we know what is best, what is right, and therefore I'll fight for it. Jesus has some words for people that decide to live like this. He continues on in verse 52. He says, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Violence to defend Jesus is never acceptable. In the midst of being confronted by his betrayer, by this armed force, Jesus actually stops and says, Guys, you followed me for three and a half years. He doesn't say this, I'm adding this, but like, you should know better. Violence begets more violence. It's not an acceptable response to when our faith is threatened. Because it's an endless cycle, right? As soon as we cause someone to submit, our violence overwhelm them, they just go back and get a bigger stick, a bigger sword, a bigger crowd. It's the cycle, the cycle of endless violence. And so Jesus says, um, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Those who fight 
and have a life defined by fighting are just going to continue that cycle. It will not end and ultimately will be their demise. So why does Jesus say this? Isn't there a time to fight? Isn't there a time to stand up for what we believe in? Doesn't Jesus' kingdom need defense? Doesn't it need me to do that? No. I don't think it does. That's where I landed this week. Sorry to everybody that's deeply into apologetics. I'm not attacking you. Um, But how arrogant do we have to think we are? That we look at Jesus' kingdom, that we look at the scriptures, we look at all this beautiful claims and say, it's really good, but I think I can help it be better. If I add a little bit of this, if I add a little bit of yelling and arguing and violence to this, then it will be more convincing. Then they won't be able to call me a fool. Then they will live how I think is best. I just assert my will, assert my dominance over this. But we don't need to justify what Jesus has said here. We don't need to add to it. It is whole and complete in itself. The gospel can stand 100% on its own. It doesn't need our violent defense. It needs us to lovingly take people to it, to guide them there, to help those who are lost and blind come to the source of hope and truth that is Jesus. We are involved in that process. But it's not this act of violent defense. It's this question asking and guidance. And this deep belief that the Spirit is actually the one going before us and doing these things. And some of you will say, well, I think you're wrong, Matt, and I'll fight you about it. Well, you should read this passage. Um, But we actually have this clear picture all throughout Jesus' life of his followers and him laying down their lives for others by being defined by sacrifice and service to others over and over and over again. And so there's been, even in my life, in my upbringing church, there's been these calls to go be a good Christian soldier. To go fight for your faith. Defend your faith. I think that is misleading. And I know, there are parts where Paul uses the analogy of a soldier. So I was doing prep this week, and I started, I'm like, I'm going to go read all those. Every one, it's like, be a soldier so that you can endure hardship. Oh. Be a soldier so that you are prepared. The analogy, the call to be soldiers in the Bible are not calls to fight. They're calls to endure and they're calls to be ready. Because we're called to be servants, just like Jesus was a servant for many. Jesus will explain himself more. Let's dive in. Verse 53. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. History lesson, Roman legions, roughly 5,000 people. Short story, Jesus has a lot of angels on speed dial. A lot. He can call these to come, to intervene, to impose so much force that nothing can stand against it. He has that option. It is there for him. He is so much more powerful than us. But this is not the God we serve. 
This is not how he acts. This is not how he brings his will to bear on the world. It's an invitation, not an ultimatum. Come and follow me. Not follow me or die. It's not the God we see. And all throughout the Bible, we actually get this other picture of God deciding and choosing to use the weak and the foolish. Uh, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians like this. But God chose, to u- chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Read that one more time. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It's 1 Corinthians 1.17. So are you weak and foolish or strong and wise? I know which one I'm going to identify with. I want to be strong and wise. I value those things. They're part of my self-identity. And I've let them define my life. What defines your life? Is it your good decisions or your mistakes? Is it your success doing hard, challenging things? Is it your failure just to get through a day? What defines you? And the good news for those of us who are listening and I feel weak and foolish inadequate, not even able to fight. God has great things for you. He's going to use you. He chooses you to shame the wise and the strong. All the stories in here, you see this over and over again, picking the underdog against the Goliath. These are the heroes of the Bible. We become so familiar with them, we forget how stark they are. We forget how this God that we follow operates by taking the weak and the foolish and using them for his glory. A word to myself, a word to the other people that think they're wise and strong. Prepare to be humbled. Prepare to be ashamed of your arrogance. A shame that you think you know what is best. A shame that you think you can do it without Jesus. Prepare to die to yourself if you want to be used for God's glory and not your own. And this is really hard. It's, it's hard for prideful people. It's hard for myself to remain humble, to continually put myself in that posture of, I don't need to fight. I don't need to be right all the time. My version of reality doesn't need to be everybody else's. Jesus's does. And he's more powerful than me and we'll figure it out. So how do I remain humble? How do we remain humble? How are we a people that is defined by sacrifice and weakness and foolishness, and only made good through Jesus. Let's continue on in verse 54 and see what Jesus has to say. But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus is comfortable in God's plan. How would the scriptures be fulfilled if we didn't let this happen? 
How would I be trusting God's plan? He knows the end of the story. He knows that his father is good, better than any of us do. And he knows that there will be this eternal victory, that he is king, his kingdom will reign. And because of this, he can calmly say, do what you came for, friend. Disciples, put your swords down. I don't need your help in this. This is what God prepared for me. I'm going to face it. And his faith is so strong that he doesn't need to depend on anything except the Father because he has confidence in all things. This is how we also remain humble. We have faith. We have faith that God is the victor over sin. We have faith that God is bigger than any challenge in our life. We have faith that the Father will take care of his children. He adopted us. He cares for us. He will give us good things. We have faith that when we rebel, when we mess up, the Spirit will come and pursue us and invite us back in with open arms. We have faith that in the end, no matter how we get there, no matter how difficult the journey may seem at times, we'll spend eternity with Jesus, that he is going before us to build us a place in heaven, a place better than we can even imagine. This faith is humbling. This faith reminds us every day that the thing I need most is Jesus. I don't need to try harder. I don't need to do more good things. First and foremost, I need Jesus. Because otherwise, I can't do anything. I'm weak and foolish. All good things come from Jesus. He enables me to do anything. So we don't have to fight for our beliefs with a faith like this. Because we know that no matter what we do, Jesus already won. We don't have to prove ourselves with a faith like this. Because we know that Jesus made us whole and right before God. Nothing that we can do will make it any better. We don't have to struggle and be anxious about where the next meal or how the next bill is going to be paid. We don't have to worry about being cared for because our Heavenly Father loves us and he delights in giving good gifts to his kids. Let's keep going in verse 55 and see how Jesus embodies this faith. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, My leading rebellion, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day in the temple courts, every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. So, you know, Jesus low key calls out the cowardice uh, of the leaders here. Why didn't you just come? I've been hanging out in front of your temple every day. But he doesn't belittle them, right? doesn't call them names, doesn't have to be loud or aggressive, just simple questions, statement of fact, interacting with them. Because he knows that he is in charge here. He has this deep faith that leads to peace and calmness in the sight in front of all this great adversity and violence. There's a man bleeding right next to him, and this is his response. There could be blood gushing in the air. People are all agitated. They're all worked up. Weapons are drawn. Simple question. 
And he continues on in verse 56. He says, But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophet might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus knows the plan. He's memorized this book. He knows what the Father has in store. And he, in faith, he trusts, he calmly, peaceably walks into this situation because he knows that God will look out for him. He's submitting to God's will for the world and for what is to come. He doesn't need to fight. He doesn't need to say his will is more important. He knows better. His faith is fully in his Father. And this seems almost impossible for some of us sitting in this room. How? How could you just sit back and let this happen? I need to push back against the hard things in my life because I will be hurt or I will look foolish or it will be hard. And I get that. And I get that. Some of us want to fight. But some of us actually are like the other disciples because they see these hard things too. But they weren't prepared. They didn't bring a sword. They weren't fighters. So what do they do? Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And honestly, this is probably more of us. This may live more strongly in us. Hard things come. Let's flee. Let's run away. You know, we either don't care or we're too afraid to stay and face things. So we flee. We avoid. We ignore. Pretend something never happened. We isolate so we don't have to deal with a challenge. Maybe that's a challenge in a community group. So you leave. Send that email to Andrew saying, are there any other CGs in my area? I don't really vibe with the mission of this one. You, you couch it in the right language, but we know what you're doing. <laughs> or you'll find a new church. That church made me do something I don't like. I won't give examples because you know, nobody likes hard examples. It's too hard. Nathan sang a song I don't like. I'm leaving. All the time. We get that one. But we isolate ourselves, right? We go find a new community. Side note. When you come to West Village from another church, we usually try and call the church you came from, and we get all the dirt on you. So, just so you know. Or maybe it's that neighbor. They're coming down the street. I got to cross to the other side of the street. Because they threw their dog poo in my yard. And I can't deal with that. Whatever it is, right? We isolate. We ignore. We go to great lengths to avoid uncomfortable challenges. It could be in your workplace. You know that that person hates Jesus. That is anti-church. Whatever it is in their past, they were burned by it. And so you go out of your way to avoid them. You flee. You flee from the challenge, from the hardship. But we do not need to be afraid of the challenges we face. We don't need to be afraid of failure. We don't need to be afraid of being uncomfortable. We don't need to worry about being inadequate to face what is before us. This is just the opposite side of the fight coin, right? Fight people too much confidence. Fight people too little confidence. Both of you, both of us, both sides think that they need to do it. That it's only through their 
strength. It's only through their knowledge that this task will get done. So they think they're up to the task, so they fight, or they don't think they're up to the task, so they run away. It's still all on them, either way. But, but as followers of Jesus, as ones that say to him, you are the Lord of my life, you are the God of the universe, we get to face any challenge with confidence. We have submitted to God's will. We have submitted to the one that is more powerful than any. And he is on our team. And because he will always win, because he defeated sin and death, because he now reigns as the ultimate victor, because he adopted us, we get to rest in the face of challenges. We can be like Jesus and be calm, be at peace in the front of an armed mob. So when life throws hard things at you, which it will constantly, endlessly. Our world is so broken, so challenging. We get to step back and be comfortable that the God of the universe is on our team. Or maybe more importantly, we're actually on his team. We come and submit to his plan, to his will, knowing that he will work it out for his good and ours. So have faith in him and not in yourself. As we end, I want to leave us with this. No matter if we are fighters or flighters, we have hope. For the fighters out there, those of you that got to stand up and defend what you believe in, the good news is that Jesus has already won. He has already won. You don't have to fight his battles You get the rest and the peace that he offers you. Peace with God and peace with others. You are called to be a child of God and not a soldier of God. And for the flighters, for the fleers, the good news for you, for us, is that Jesus will pursue you. He will chase you down. You can't run away. Maybe that's not good news for some of us. But it actually is. He will find you. He will remind you that he is enough. He is sufficient for every challenge in your life. Submit to his will. Accept his invitation of pursuit. And be confident, because he did it all for you. For all of us, the call is to follow Jesus. And it's a call to die to ourselves. Die to our will, die to our arrogance, die to our fear, and follow Jesus. Because Jesus is our only hope. He's the only one that can save us. So we put our faith in him and nothing else. And so we're going to take communion as a remembrance of this. We don't sing the same song every week. We don't read the same passage every week. We probably say some of the same jokes every week, but it's unrelated. But we take communion every week as this present physical reminder that Jesus is our only hope. That without his death and resurrection, we are inadequate, we are foolish and weak. And the only way we are strong and wise is through his work on the cross. So as you take this wafer, remember that. 
Remember that he died to make you whole. As you take this cup, this symbol, this promise, that he will not leave or forsake you, it is a new covenant with us. A new commitment from God to his people that he has a plan and he's working it out. Do this in remembrance of him. I pray. Nathan's going to lead us. Yeah, Jesus, thank you that you are all sufficient. That you are the victor over every battle. That you are the most powerful. But that you don't force your will upon us. You don't force us into submission, but you invite us lovingly to submit to your Father, to come into your family. And so may that posture of humble submission define us as a people. Our world wants to fight. They want to argue. They want to yell. May we be defined as a people of humble submission as we calmly walk out our faith in you. Amen.